I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Mark Walsh, who writes for SCOTUS Blog, the ABA Journal, and Education Week. It's been a while since your last appearance on the podcast, so Mark, welcome back. Always happy to be here. So it's been a busy week at the Supreme Court with the justices issuing one pretty big opinion, orders, uh, hearing oral arguments, and then there's the dust-up between the Chief Justice and Senator Chuck Schumer. So first up, we'll hit the highlights of uh, the court's opinion in Kansas versus Garcia. It was a 5-4 ruling uh, with the decision, majority decision written by Justice Alito, split uh, along sort of traditional ideological lines. The court held that federal immigration law does not preempt a state law criminalizing identity fraud based on information provided on the I-9 employment verification forms. So here, three illegal aliens were convicted of identity theft in Kansas for fraudulently using other people's social security numbers on state and federal tax forms and on the I-9 forms. This went all the way to the Kansas Supreme Court, which overturned their convictions on the ground that federal the Federal Immigration Reform and Control Act expressly preempts state identity fraud laws. It held that a state could not use information contained in the I-9 form as a basis for state law prosecution. So the state of Kansas asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review that decision, and uh, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling this week. Reversing the state Supreme Court, uh, the court said that the state court had read the federal law way too broadly. It uh, said its, its reading is uh, flatly contrary to standard English usage. The court explained that although a tangible ob- object can be contained in only one place at a time, an item of information uh, may be contained in many different places. So accordingly, the federal immigration law did not expressly preempt state identity theft laws. The court also held that the federal law did not impliedly preempt the state law because state law uh, did not the state law did not conflict with the federal law and the field covered by the federal law is unrelated to the submission of tax forms. Uh, Justice Breyer, joined by Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, concurred in part and dissented in part. Uh, and although Breyer agreed that uh, that there was no express preemption, he believed that there was implied field preemption. Uh, he viewed the field broadly as. Uh, policing fraud committed to demonstrate federal work authorization. So, Mark, uh, any insights on on that ruling? Well, I just thought, you know, this case is kind of uh, a relatively low-key case of the term, and, and then this week it's probably getting lost in a lot of bigger stuff. But I thought I'd point out an interesting passage from Justice Alito I thought was uh, almost Kagan-esque in <laughs> his use of some examples. He talks about supplying information if you go to a website to buy shoes and how that might get shared and even talks about a student uh, looking up uh, information on the moon landing and one of his clerks had to look up Neil Armstrong's hometown newspaper, the Wapakoneta Ohio <laughs> Daily News. And then he said, suppose that an elementary school student writes a report in which she states that the first man walked on the moon in 1969. No one would say that the student used information contained in the Wapakoneta Daily News or another newspaper if she never saw those publications. Justice Alito using uh, some interesting examples to bring the opinion to life a little bit. So turning to the orders, uh, the court granted cert in three new cases, which we'll just very briefly touch on. So the first is U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service versus Sierra Club. And the issue is whether an exemption to the Freedom of Information Act, better known to many as FOIA, protects against compelled disclosure of a federal agency's draft documents that concerned a proposed a, uh, agency action that was later modified 
uh, after an interagency consultation process. Sounds riveting. Uh, next is Borden versus United States, and this is whether the use of force clause in the Armed Career Criminal Act encompasses crimes with, an, uh, with a mens rea of mere recklessness. It seems the court can never get away from more Armed Career Criminal Act cases. They just decided one a couple weeks ago, and they've got another one coming up now. And then finally, uh, the big the big news this week, California versus Texas. This is a challenge to the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate provision, which the Supreme Court previously upheld as a lawful exercise of Congress's taxing power. So Congress eliminated that tax penalty in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. And so this case brought by private plaintiffs, Texas, and several other states is asking the Supreme Court to declare that the individual mandate is unconstitutional and cannot be severed from the remainder of the law. So that case, uh, all three of those cases will be argued in the next term. Of course, you know, the the ACA case is a, a very big deal. The court was asked by California and the states on its side to to add the, that case to this term and the, and the court denied that. So our general feeling in the press room was that the court and perhaps the chief did not want to have that issue in such a big term, but did turn around a few weeks later and, and grant it. And, uh, you know, we're not sure when the court will hear this, but obviously all the briefing will be going on in the midst of the presidential election and a decision, you know, not likely till uh, 2021. Yeah, maybe it could be end up being June of 2021. <laughs> Correct. And this will be, I think, the sixth case stemming from the Affordable Care Act to come to the Supreme Court. So it is certainly the full employment act for uh, Supreme Court lawyers. They need that. <laughs> Before we get to the arguments this week, I wanted to talk briefly about what happened between the Chief Justice and Senator Chuck Schumer. So speaking at a rally outside of the Supreme Court, after oral argument this week in the Louisiana abortion case, the Senate minority leader Chuck Schumer called out Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh by name, saying, quote, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. So Chief Justice John Roberts issued a statement rebuking Schumer, and here's what he had to say. Uh, Justices know that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they are dangerous. All members of the court will continue to do their job without fear or favor from whatever quarter. And Senator Schumer, initially his office doubled down saying that, you know, the senator clearly meant that uh, Republicans will pay a political price for putting Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on the court. Um, this led to, you know, many members of the Senate and people in the media and even the American Bar Association, which is not typically considered a bastion of conservatism, uh, you know, lambasting Schumer for his uh, intimidation tactics. And then Thursday, uh, Schumer took to the Senate floor offering somewhat of a half apology. It kind of seemed like a sorry, not sorry to me. He said he's passionate about women's right to have an abortion and Republicans are trying to take that away. And then he said, you know, look, I'm from Brooklyn. I speak in strong language. And he said, I, I shouldn't have used the words that I did. Uh, but in no way was I making a threat. I never would do such a thing, and Leader McConnell knows that. Uh, he claims the reference to paying a price clearly means, you know, the Republicans are going to pay a political price and that Republicans are busy manufacturing outrage over these comments, and, and they know that. I think Senator Schumer 
should know better, and I think he really does know better. Uh, the rhetoric surrounding the court has become increasingly aggressive in recent years. You know, just consider Senator Whitehouse's amicus brief last fall in in the gun case, where he told the court it needs to heal itself or it will face restructuring. Uh, so, you know, I didn't think uh, Senator Schumer's uh, apology was enough, and we we really need. Uh, politicians to be more careful in in their language because you know we shouldn't be threatening uh, members of the Supreme Court. Well, uh, I don't have an opinion on that just because I <laughs> covered these things and and I, uh, but I have some observations. Uh, I mean, uh, Senator Schumer's explanation and his staff's explanation for his comments were directed to you, Justice Gorsuch, and you, Justice Kavanaugh. Did, didn't really square. Um, uh, but as he said today on the floor or Thursday on the floor that he didn't word it maybe as he would have liked. Of course, some of his allies on the left are um, comparing his language with that of uh, Brett Kavanaugh when he was uh, a nominee and had come back to the Senate Judiciary Committee in the heat of his uh, confirmation battle with some strong language. So I, I did wonder if – you know about the chief justice's response, whether it might have been better to just let – these comments at an outdoor rally outside the court go. But I think Senator Schumer's comments did get quite a bit of attention. And the chief who had responded to President Trump about a year ago, criticism of judges, then did not respond a couple weeks ago with regard to the president's comments on Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg, perhaps, you know, in the president's view, should not be ruling on his cases. I think maybe the chief justice said, all right, I'll respond to a Democratic leader's statements. I don't think he wants to respond to every one of the president's <laughs> statements because he'd be doing nothing but that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that the the chief is, is admonishing, you know, uh, all, all uh, criticisms that are, you know, beyond the pale of the the Supreme Court. Although, you know, I think there there is something a little bit different about the president. You know, putting aside whether whether Sotomayor and, and Ginsburg should recuse themselves in all cases involving President Trump or the administration. Putting that aside, I think there is something different with suggesting they recuse and you know threatening them and saying they're going to pay a price. And I recognize it was at a rally, but I, I think that uh, Senator Schumer went went too far. Uh, but turning to the big event, the main event, there were two big Supreme Court arguments this week. First up was CELA Law versus CFPB. Uh, by way of background, this case is challenging the structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which Congress created in 2010. Uh, it, it has a single director appointed by the president who serves a five-year term and can only be removed from office for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. So the structure of this new agency drew constitutional challenges almost immediately, uh, and the argument is that uh, the removal protections uh, afforded to the, the director violate the president's power to remove subordinate officers. So, Mark, you were at the court. What were some of the highlights from the argument? Yeah, so um, this argument was would be a big deal in any week, although it, you know it's it's somewhat uh, of special interest to uh, law nerds in Washington who are concerned <laughs> about separation of powers and the unitary executive and that sort of thing. Um, and and so it was the day before the big abortion case that we're going to get to. Um, but you you have a packed courtroom. You have uh, Maureen Scalia. Uh, the wife of the late Justice Anton Scalia coming to court because three of his former clerks are arguing in the case, three of the four. You know, you have uh, like Mick Mulvaney was there from the administration, the acting White House chief of staff. And also 
in my view, a very well-argued case, lots of highlights with and some fireworks. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those times in you're sitting in the Supreme Court in an argument and you feel like you're just really learning at a, at a constitutional seminar of the highest order. Yeah, definitely. You know, when you have uh, people of the caliber of, you know, Ken and Chan McGahn and Noel Francisco and Paul Clement um, arguing together and against each other at different, different points, depending on, on the arguments, uh, it really is a, a masterclass in Supreme Court advocacy. So um, just your takeaways from, from the argument, you think uh, it's looking, looking bad for the CFPB, looking good for the CFPB? It's looking somewhat good for the view of of seal law and the administration. There are some differences there, but not, I think, as sweeping as some of the arguments that I think Cannon was maybe making about the whole Dodd Frank Act yeah. having to be um, struck, struck down. down yeah. <laughs> for this, I think, the administration's view of maybe this measure could be severed would maybe be the most likely to prevail. But maybe go into some of the, some of the highlights of that argument, and and we did have you know as you mentioned Paul Clement because the government had chosen not to defend the judgment below. Paul Clement appointed by Justice Kagan as Circuit Justice for the Ninth Circuit, where this came from. Uh, some might call it the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth but, Circus, yeah, appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did a very good job in his brief and his argument. He was trying to assure some of the conservative members of the court that there'd really be no sweeping effect to upholding this this structure, and because questions were raised about you know whether the president would even be able to fire cabinet members if if. Uh, uh, this line of thinking prevailed, and uh, he he made a very interesting uh, analogy. Um, he said, "In the current situation, you see, people are trying to make a political football out of dealing with a pandemic disease. So maybe Congress decides, uh, you know, what makes sense. Let's have the head of CDC be protected by four cause removal because that'll make sure people get good advice and it doesn't become political." That's the kind of sensible decision that Congress has been making for over 100 years, end quote. Um, uh, you know, obviously a very salient uh, kind of uh, uh, example to bring <laughs> to the court. Um, um, uh, so uh, I, I think uh, you know that uh, um, Justice uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, tangled with uh, uh, Paul Clement in this argument a bit uh, Justice Gorsuch is sometimes impatient with uh, <laughs> counsel who don't answer his question right away. Yeah. Um, my uh, colleague in the press room, Marsha Coyle, wrote a story uh, this week. Just notice how many times he'd say, I- I'd be grateful if you uh, could answer that question or give us an answer. Yeah. He-, he likes the word grateful. And um, uh, and some of my colleagues described Paul as being a bit taken aback. I, uh, you know, Paul Clement was making his 101st argument here. He just did his 100th last week, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't. I think he handled it pretty well. And he he tried to respond to Justice Gorsuch. He more or less apologized for Justice Gorsuch's suggestion that he had disparaged the Solicitor General with a, a little bit of a quip uh, <laughs> that uh, Paul Clement had made, and, and of course it, it went on, and, and there are nine. Justices up there, and eight of them who were regularly asking questions, and, and it moves on. So, well, we'll see what happens. I bet this is going to be one where we won't see an opinion until maybe late late May or maybe even into June. 
But turning to the second big argument of the week, the court heard argument in June Medical Services versus Russo. This is a challenge to Louisiana's law requiring abortion providers to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. So if this sounds familiar, that's because the court invalidated a similar Texas law in 2016 in the Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt case. In in that case, the court found that uh, the Texas law constituted an undue burden on women's access to abortion. Uh, but the court did not rule that laws requiring admit- admitting privileges are per se unconstitutional. So an additional issue the court considered in uh, June Medical Services is whether abortion providers should even be allowed to bring lawsuits asserting the rights of women uh, to access abortions in the first place. So the argument here is that abortion providers don't have standing to litigate women's claims. Uh, Courts typically gloss over the standing inquiry uh, in in these types of cases, assuming doctors and clinics may assert women's uh, claims under the third-party standing doctrine. So there was not um, a ton of discussion of this at the oral argument, although Justice Alito uh, did ask a lot of questions, uh, particularly of the the lawyer for June Medical Services about this. He was the only conservative justice to ask about standing. Uh, and in particular, he wanted to know, you know if there's a conflict of interest between doctors uh, and, and women. The lawyer for June Medical Services said that, you know, since doctors are directly regulated, they should be able to sue asserting the women's claims, even where the challenged law quote, in a sense, protected the third parties from the plaintiffs. Liz Merle, who's the Louisiana Solicitor General, argued that abortion providers don't meet the rigorous rule for third party standing and the court should make them comply with the same rules as any other federal litigant. Ginsburg wanted to know how this case is different from some of the court's other third-party standing cases, um, such as uh, probably the the best-known Craig versus Boren from 1976, where the court allowed a beer seller to assert an equal protection claim to a state law barring the sale of 3.2 percent beer to men ages 18 to 21. So the Louisiana SG explained uh, that in her view, Craig v. Boren is more like a mootness case uh, because there had been an individual plaintiff in that case, but he had turned 21 while the case was pending, and the Supreme Court didn't see the point in waiting for another challenge. Uh, but she also pointed out that in Craig v. Boren, uh, there wasn't a conflict of interest, whereas here you're dealing with health, a health and safety regulation, uh, and there could be such a conflict. Uh, Jeff Wall from the Solicitor General of the United States um, office picked up on this thread later in the argument, pointing out that abortion providers um, most likely are going to want less regulation, and women presumably want qualified doctors treating them. Um, can I say one thing yes. about the third party standing? Because obviously an abortion case raises a lot of profound issues when you get to the merits. Um, sitting in the press section during the argument, uh, I won't say exactly who, but uh, <laughs> a colleague of mine who works for a legal publication, as this was going on for some time, just said, oh, I'm loving this. <laughs> so. Much of the argument focused on the merits of the Louisiana law and, and the benefits and burdens of this law. Uh, that's particularly what the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh wanted to know about. And um, they are seen as uh, the key votes in this case. Uh, Roberts, of course, had sided with the liberal members of the court to grant a stay to June Medical Services earlier in this litigation. So the lawyer for uh, the clinics uh, for June Medical Services says there are no medical benefits to admitting privileges. Um, But Louisiana can point to uh, numerous instances of incompetence by doctors in Louisiana that motivated the state legislator to pass this law. Uh, So the SG also pointed out that this requirement is consistent with what the state requires of, of doctors that perform other kinds of procedures, whether in their office or at an ambulatory surgery, uh, surgery center. 
the Louisiana SG explained that in addition to providing continuity of care by allowing doctors to treat their patients at a nearby hospital, it also serves as a bit of a quality control measure because hospitals conduct uh, a much more thorough review of applicants for admitting privileges uh, than than a clinic's review in the course of hiring. Um, she pointed out that you know June Medical Services, for example, had previously hired a radiologist and an ophthalmologist, and, and they had been trained to perform abortions. Um, Looking to the burdens, Justice Kavanaugh asked, you know, if if all the doctors could get admit, admitting privileges, would the law still be an undue burden on abortion access? And the lawyer for June Medical Services said, you know, the law would have no benefit, but it would still be an undue burden. And the SG of Louisiana pointed out that, you know, look, the doctors have been able to get privileges. Um but some of them have have failed to to make a good faith effort. She pointed out that you know one doctor, for example, had applied to only one out of nine hospitals in his area, even though a colleague of his um, was able to get privileges at one of the other eight hospitals that he didn't apply to. Uh, notably, Justice Gorsuch did not ask any questions. Justice Thomas didn't either, but that's that's pretty standard. Uh, so, what were some of your insights? So, as you you mentioned with Justice Gorsuch, this is really. Like for Justice Kavanaugh, this is their first abortion rights case. Uh, Justice Gorsuch was on the court when it dealt with the California law involving uh, advertising uh, mm-hmm. related to abortion centers and and alternative centers. So he he just sat and, and took it all in. And, mm-hmm. and as you indicated, Justice Kavanaugh was quite active and the chief justice only asking a few questions. So my sense that for many people on the court, for most of the others besides uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, although now you know, people are wondering about where the chief justice might fall on this, but certainly the liberal block of the court seemed you know, pretty solid in its uh, views that it would probably hold to whole women's health, the case from a couple of years ago, uh, a few years ago. Uh, I had a sense you know, from Justice Breyer who was talking uh, quite a bit about some of the third-party standing mm-hmm. uh, precedents uh, that that allowed doctors to assert the rights of women, um, and from and his discussion of the record and there's all the all these doctors are referred to as Doe number one, Doe number two, and so forth, um, and just his uh, just a general observation, sort of a sense of world weariness with the abortion issue, which obviously has been a contentious issue for uh, in this country for. Uh, uh, 40 years at least, you know, kind of know where they're going to go. But we don't know, I think, how this case is going to come out at the end of the day yesterday uh, on an argument day because uh, we're just not sure where the chief justice is going to go. There are some people who suggested he's, you know, laying the groundwork for a narrow ruling uh, and that, that in favor of, the, the, of Louisiana mm-hmm. and the Louisiana law. But uh, we'll have to see. Yeah, I think this will certainly be one of those rulings that will probably get the last week of June right before they hightail it out of the city for the summer. <laughs> well, speaking of Louisiana, I recently spoke with Elizabeth Merle, who is the Solicitor General of the state. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thanks for having me. So you've spent most of your career working in government in Louisiana. You worked for Governor Jindal and in the state's Justice Department. So tell me about some of your experiences. So oddly, I don't think I ever would have predicted this for myself, but I've worked in some capacity in government for pretty most of my whole career. Um, When I got out of law school, I clerked in federal court, and then I clerked in the state appellate court, and then I moved from there to the LSU Law School and stayed there for a while. Also practiced a lot and you know had private practice during that time. 
um, managed to have four children during that time. (laughs) (laughs) And then I competed and was selected for this Supreme Court fellowship in 2007 and um, came to D.C. for a year. And when I came back, that's when I joined the general administration. And so I've been kind of more active outside of academia and the court system. I've been more actively involved in state government um, legal issues for probably the last 10 years. So you were appointed to be the first Solicitor General of Louisiana back in 2016, although you weren't the the first person to hold sort of this position, just the first one with that with that title. Uh, friend of the podcast, Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan had had served as the appellate chief of Louisiana, uh, which had pretty much the same function. Right. So tell me about setting up your office. And um, are there any states that you've tried to model your office after? And what have been some of the highlights so far? Well, you know, the bright shining star for all of us is Texas. <laughs> <laughs> they have the big office. So but uh, NAG has a seminar every year, and, and so a lot of the solicitor generals from all over the country come together, um, both sides of the aisle, and we'll, we'll talk about our offices um, at that meeting. And so you get a good idea, I think, of how people, what different offices do, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of our states handle work a little differently. Some, some states do all their states' habeas work, and some don't, and so a lot of times that dictates what the SG's office is going to be doing. Um, so I looked at those things. I mean, I looked at, you know, what are we doing? What are our, what are our needs? What's our budget look like? Um, you know, what do we what do we want to be doing? I mean, initially when I first took over the role, I was also the civil division director. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of, you know, wearing two hats. I moved from there to I put the civil division hat aside and took the administrative director division hat and put that on and wore those two hats. And so I, now all I do is the SG work. But mm-hmm. in the first two years, it was kind of dicey because I was doing a lot. We were trying to figure out how to build our office. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was able to kind of look at how other people's offices were built, what size based on the size of their state and how much work did they have? What did we need? I mean, I'm still always looking to recruit you know, smart, capable people. And I've managed to find some super fantastic people. Um, <laughs> A couple of them are sitting right next to me. And uh, so, you know, I hired Scott St. John. He's fantastic. He works out in New Orleans. Um, I've recently hired two assistant solicitor generals. Um, they're fantastic. I have another deputy who came out of academia. She's she's great. Um, my, my assistant, Lauren, is I call her my air traffic controller. She's the <laughs> other half of me. I couldn't do, you know, half of the things that I do without her. Um, so that's kind of our core group right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'd st- we have a lot of work to do, so I'm always looking to find you know good people. It's great work. We love what we do. So as Solicitor General, you've had the opportunity to argue twice before the U.S. Supreme Court, and your third argument is coming up in a couple of weeks in early March. So tell me about your first Supreme Court argument. McCoy versus Louisiana. So that was a really interesting um, case. And it came to us through one of the district attorney offices, mm-hmm. and it was just an unusual situation. It arose from capital um, litigation, from a, a prosecution um, of someone in North Louisiana who had been uh, charged with capital murder. And in the course of the defense of his case, his his lawyer had conceded that he committed the crimes uh, to 
as a means of defending him from the ultimate penalty of death. So it's, mm-hmm. it's called a concession defense. It's kind of a well-known thing in defense, I think, capital defense circles. Um, the the unique thing about that case was that he did this over the objection of his client, and that <laughs> made it very different from a case that had been decided 12 years earlier, and um, which was Florida v. Nixon, where the client didn't overtly object. Mm-hmm. And so really it was one of those cases where Justice Ginsburg wrote the opinion 12 years prior to McCoy and said, you know, this is not that. And if that situation arises, it might be a different answer. And so McCoy, 12 years later, is that fact scenario mm-hmm. or close to it? And so it presented, I think, the question more acutely. Um, but it was, you know, it was an interesting thing because I was basically defending the state's conviction yeah. and the process, and the judge hadn't done anything wrong in our view. He had tried his best to protect the process and make sure that the defendant received due process. Mm-hmm. Um, the prosecutors hadn't done anything wrong either. Um, they were very solicitous trying to make sure that everything was done right because at the end of the day, they don't want – they, if they get a conviction, they don't want it reversed. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, I found myself defending – what the lawyer did, um, and you know, he had particular reasons for doing what he did, but mm-hmm. um, that was a, you know, that was an interesting case. So, in in your two arguments, you went toe to toe with some pretty formidable opponents: uh, a former Solicitor General of the United States, Seth Waxman, and Stanford Law Professor Jeffrey Fisher. So, as a first time and second time advocate, was that intimidating not only to be arguing before the Supreme Court, but up against these? Two people who had been there many times before. Sure, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely is. Um, when I met, so I was preparing for the argument, and I think I think Seth Waxman had at that time, probably more now, had argued something like forty cases. Mm-hmm. Um, has done a lot of pro bono work in criminal cases. I had never met him before, but. When I arrived at the Supreme Court for the day of the arguments, you know, we're upstairs in the lawyer's lounge and Scott Harris, the clerk, comes in and he kind of looks at to his left and there's Paul Clement. And Paul, this isn't Paul Clement's first radio either. So <laughs> Seth, Waxman is, is, Seth Waxman is on one side of me and Paul Clement's on the other side of me. And he so Scott Harris kind of looks at me and says, you're the only one that needs this speech. <laughs> so he kind of gives me the the, you know. The speech for a first-time advocate and um, where I'm going to sit and, mm-hmm. you know, when he's going to come and bring me in and um, what to do and when to stand up and all of those sort of fundamental things that they didn't need to know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and but he he asked me at the time, he said, do have we met before? And I said, I don't I don't know if you know maybe because I was a fellow here a few years ago, it's probably eight years ago, but you know, I'm sure you wouldn't remember that. And mm-hmm. uh and so we we just started chatting, and I think that um, I mentioned that my father was there. I thanked him for kind of helping to accommodate us on some guest seating for that argument, and uh, and that my father was here. And and so Seth Waxman came over to me after that and started talking, you know, just mm-hmm. talking with me and saying that his very first argument, his father was able to come and see him argue his very first case. Yeah, and he was very kind and. Um, and so, and and uh, it was great. There, everybody that I've met and worked with on all of these cases has been so fantastic. You know, I think there's just a lot of people who are invested in making sure that we all can put our best foot forward mm-hmm. and and do a good job in this type of advocacy. 
And I'm grateful to all of them for their help, even if they're on the other side. <laughs> Especially, yeah. yeah. So have you developed any pre-argument rituals or do you have any traditions? Do you have a pump-up jam to get yourself in the right headspace before an argument? I don't really have one. I have a new uh, pump-up video. So okay. it's the, uh, the, the LSU championship team hype video. It's <laughs> great. If you haven't seen it, that's my new pump-up song. It's, the, it's my pump-up video. It's great <laughs> hype video. That's great. Uh, so I, I listen to that. I listen to a wide variety of different music. But um, right now, I think the kind of music that I want is music with no words. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, it's you read a lot, you prepare a lot, you mood a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes you just want to have something that has no words. Decompress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit, uh, Louisiana is known for its unique legal system. Um, is it really that different from other states, though? You know, you hear things about the Napoleonic Codes and things like that, but since you're from Louisiana, uh, educate us. Well, okay. So first thing I can do is clarify that we do not follow the Napoleonic Code. <laughs> <laughs> we have our own code. We have the Louisiana Civil Code. Uh, there are other states that also have their own civil codes. Georgia has a civil code. Mm-hmm. We have a code of criminal procedure and a criminal code. I mean, mm-hmm. we are a kind of a code-based system. And and so the foundations of our legal system are based on a kind of Roman civil law foundation. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the time that really doesn't come out any differently than – a common law system. I mean, we still mm-hmm. have we use a little bit different terminology and probably <laughs> my civil law systems professors would say, no, it's terribly different. And there's you know, there are a lot, there are some nuances that make it kind of different. Uh, but you know, and there are some of our laws that are very traceable back, you know, all the way mm-hmm. down the line to um, Spanish law or French law or the French civil code because it was a model for our civil code. And so there there are some of those things like that. But, I mean, most of our legal principles are generally you find something that correlates in the common law. Mm-hmm. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> uh, so I want to return to something that you mentioned. Uh, so you spent a year up here in Washington at the uh, – being uh, working at the Supreme Court as a judicial fellow. Uh, so I read that that you worked with the International International Judicial Affairs Office. That's why I bet you met some interesting people in the course of that year. Can you tell me about that experience? That was a fantastic experience. I worked with uh, closely with Mira Girari, who who does this all of the time with that particular with the International Affairs mm-hmm. team, and she works with uh, with the federal judges who are on the committee that do rule of law. Programs and so they will travel around the world, um, just explaining and working with emerging democracies. At the time that I was there, there were we would have teams that would come in from other countries to the FJC, and they would do tours. They would they would come in for lectures at the FJC, mm-hmm. uh, the, or they would go to the court. And one of my my colleagues, um, who was a fellow at the court, would sometimes do the same thing that I would do uh, at the at the FJC, but. We would just give them briefings and mm-hmm. we would talk about our legal system and why it was different and what was different about it. And they would tell us about their legal system. You know, one of the interesting experiences that I had that year was meeting with the first 80 women judges appointed in Egypt. Oh, wow. So that was really fascinating. And and so it was kind of interesting. And we had this big discussion afterward about how great it was that there were these new, these women that had been appointed to be judges in Egypt. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, they even brought this up that they didn't have judicial independence. They were appointed by the executive. Mm-hmm. They could be fired by the executive. Ooh. And so, you know, we there were a lot of conversations like that during the year. It was really interesting to talk with other countries that were emerging democracies, thinking about setting up their systems mm-hmm. and what kind of factors come into play with and, and a large part of that conversation, a lot of the time, was judicial independence was so important yeah. to um, to be able to ultimately create the kind of balance that we have in our system. So you also mentioned that uh, you taught at LSU at the law school there for a number of years. Uh, what were some of your favorite classes to teach? Well, the classes that I primarily taught were appellate advocacy and legal writing. Mm-hmm. And so that's I did that for almost 12 years. And uh, it was a great experience. I mean, I've always been, I've always loved to write, mm-hmm. and I've always been a writer, kind of at heart, and and an editor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that you do teaching law students is not just how to do legal research and how to structure an argument, but you get the opportunity to work with some really smart fun people in moot court practice and moot court competition. And Mm -hmm. that was probably one of the things that I really enjoyed the most was moot court coaching Mm -hmm. because they were, you know, they were self-selecting into this. They weren't, they, they were just really, it wasn't a class they had to take. It was just something they were doing because they wanted to. Uh, So we would spend a lot of time practicing and, and then go travel with them to competitions. And, mm-hmm. and I got to do some, I got to do some things that were a little outside my ordinary comfort zone. I think I coached the, um, the Admiralty Moot Court team for three years. Oh, <laughs> so well, you're in the Fifth Circuit. What's something that you wish you had known when you were just starting out in your legal career? Well, I think there's two things. One, you know, I think that, I think that there's, I think it's very sound advice that I received and that I followed um, to 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 kind of have some purpose in what you do. I mean, it doesn't have to be – I always had some guiding sort of star. Mm-hmm. I knew when I was in law school that I wanted to clerk because I loved reading opinions. I loved the way they were written. Mm-hmm. I, wanted, I thought that would be really, really cool to work for a judge and to be able to draft opinions. And that I knew that that was the very first thing that I wanted to do mm-hmm. and I always felt like that was a great foundation – that's something I always tell my law clerks and, and interns. I, I always encourage them to clerk mm-hmm. because it's such a great foundational experience to to kind of begin, begin your career. You get to practice. You get to write. Mm-hmm. You have to so discipline your thinking, discipline your writing, um, think about you're faced with different situations, um, and then you get to see advocacy. Mm-hmm. So – whether you're doing that in a trial a trial level clerkship or you're doing it at a, at an in an appellate level clerkship or you're doing both uh, you still get some time to kind of see people advocating you see good you get to see bad and you get to practice writing in mm-hmm. a very disciplined way so i think just skill development that kind of focusing on building building blocks building skills and and thinking about becoming a better lawyer and a good and and over time it doesn't happen all at one time mm-hmm. and you know most of us when we get out of law school we really don't know how to do anything <laughs> so that, you know it's you have a lot to learn when you get out and you pass the bar it's a beginning not an ending and i think that you know being able to build 
build your skills over time and recognizing that it really does take a long time to be good at something Mm -hmm. like this, that over time, the more you do something, the better you get at it. And that's that's the advice that I give to people. And, and of course, I love what I do. Every job I've ever had, I, I, I thought about, you know, was there something about it that would really that I would really like to do or really love about that job? If it was writing, if it mm-hmm. was advocacy, if it was teaching, if it was there was something about it that was going to that I was going to be excited about. And I think that that has given me some of a non-traditional career path. So one final question, something I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? So I I have a very practical answer to this question. I mean, okay. of all the, the, the Supreme Court justices, my answer is Justice Alito <laughs> because it, it, it has more likelihood of actually occurring than having lunch with a dead Supreme Court justice. <laughs> but if I could, you know, I would love to go to lunch with Justice Alito. He's our circuit justice and uh, really, you know, my favorite Supreme Court justice. And I'd love to go sit down and have lunch with him. That'd be great. Well, thank you for uh, joining me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia before they were justices edition. I'm going to try to stump my guest host, Mark Walsh. Oh. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> I, okay. I don't remember how well I did the last time. I don't, I'm not, <laughs> not, not super well, I don't think. But um, Okay, first question. Before uh, being appointed to the high court, this future justice spent two summers in Sweden studying the country's civil procedure. That would be Justice Ginsburg. That is correct. And she learned Swedish and co-authored a book on the country's civil procedure. Okay, you're off to a great start. Second question. During college, this future justice apparently played a prank on one of his roommates by uh, filling up their dorm's ice cube tray with salt uh, so that when his roommate had his nightly scotch on the rocks, it was uh, not a tasty treat. Right. I don't have – I don't know. I'm going to make a guess like uh, – guess Justice Gorsuch. No, it was actually Justice Alito, which really surprised okay. me when I when I heard this, uh, because that seems pretty unlike the bookish and kind of quiet justice who seems like he would have been sticking to his studies when he was in school. <laughs> OK, third question. In high school, it's rumored that this future justice was quite the Latin scholar and he was able to translate the Aeneid side by side with his Latin teacher. This is a current member of the court? Okay, I'll say the Chief Justice. That is correct, and you know, in addition to uh, to his uh, his uh, expertise in Latin, he was involved in a number of extracurriculars, uh, including playing peppermint patty in his school's production of "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown." Since he went to an all boys school. <laughs> okay. Sorry that they didn't get that on video. <laughs> that would be something. Uh, fourth question. This future justice has spent a lot of time outdoors and he's actually a double black diamond skier. Well, that I think is probably Justice Gorsuch. That is correct. The Colorado native Justice Gorsuch loves skiing and you know, he talked at one point in his confirmation hearing about how uh, he, he and his wife love to take their girls on backcountry skiing trips and That's right. they're all very good at it. OK. Final question. In this future justice's high school yearbook photo, she was posed in a judge's robe with a gavel in hand. OK. What wasn't – when you said high school yearbook photo, that someone else came to mind immediately <laughs> as, as you might expect. Um, oh, who was – with a gavel in her hand. And I, I think I've read somewhere that she also had the accolade of um, 
being most likely to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Wow. Well, say Justice Kagan? That is correct. Okay. Yes. She had her eyes on the prize uh, even when she was back in high school. Well, I think can, he did a great job. Can I say something yes. quick about gavels since they're, <laughs> they're quite the popular um, gift item in the, the Supreme Court gift shop? And uh, if you find like some of the the RBG toys, you know, they come with her little lace gloves and – and yeah. <laughs> a jabot and a gavel. But the members of the court don't do a lot of gaveling on the bench. In fact, none at all. It's the marshal who gavels things. And, and yet, you know, the chief got to use that little gavel in the Senate, not the normal one with a handle. But uh, yeah. uh, so it just it just amuses me sometimes when uh, people are buying these gavels in the, in the court <laughs> gift shop. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, Elizabeth. Happy to uh, do it anytime. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans. The Leah Rampersad and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.